If you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to, the, to 1 Thessalonians, we'll take a reading from verses 1 to 10, and then uh, we're going we're to do a sort of a survey of 1 Thessalonians, then I intend to come back uh, as we and touch and touch on some of these themes over the next several weeks as we think our way through Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica. It was a church that was birthed by the power of the Holy Spirit in a very uncertain time, a lot of conflict, a lot of persecution. And Paul was only there for a short time at Thessalonica, but he left behind, uh, one of my friends uh, from Missouri, he would say he left behind a little baby church and then grew up and became a mature church without Paul's help because they're the Holy Spirit working through them in a, in a mighty way. So let's take a reading from chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of, our, and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us, from the wrath to come. Now let's make a prayer together. Father, we bow before you asking for your help, Lord, and I really ask for your help to give this sermon this morning. And Lord, you know the, I just can't do it without you. And I trust in the help of the Holy Spirit to say what is correct here. And I pray that this, these words of yours would find good ground in the hearts of these people. And I pray that those who need something, Lord, special will be able to get it through the preaching. I don't know what everybody needs, Lord, but you do. And I pray that you would fit your word to their heart. And Lord, I pray for those who are here who are not Christians at all. And I pray, Lord, that they'll be able to hear the gospel in a clear way, in that effectual way that will cause them to live and believe in Jesus as their Savior. We pray for those who are not here this morning, Lord, who've been detained by sin or by sickness, Lord. I pray that for the next the next hour or so while we're worshiping here and eating and drinking together, that they would feel um, that they would feel the absence, Lord. Those who are not here because they're traveling or on vacation, Lord, or working, I pray that they would feel the same way, that they would know that they're missed and loved here at faith. I pray your blessing now upon us, Lord. We ask for your help in Christ's holy name. Amen. In this little letter, the first thing we encounter in verse number three are these three men, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. 
You may want to make a note to yourself, maybe if you have a, a study Bible, it may tell you already that Silvanus here is just another way to mention the name of Silas, who was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. These three men are special men. The first, of course, is the Apostle Paul, and he has written for us the 13 letters of the New Testament. Now, sometimes we may say he wrote 14 letters of the New Testament. That's if you include Hebrews, but nobody knows who wrote Hebrews except for Jim Ackerman. And Jim always says, who would you, who'd you say it was, Jim? Bruce. Have you ever heard of the Apostle Bruce? <laughs> well, if you've been around Jim Ackerman, you've heard about Bruce. And so nobody knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. And if we did know, I don't know if it would help us, help us any at all, but the Apostle Paul did write 13 letters of the New Testament. We know he wrote them because the first word of all 13 is Paul, Paul writing the letters. And Paul was a person, he was a Jewish man, born and raised in the, in the Jewish faith. In the Jewish tradition, he was a skilled orator, he was a skilled teacher. Not like he wasn't a skilled orator, he was a skilled, uh, skilled teacher, a rabbi in the Jewish religion. But then in, in Acts chapter number 9, he encountered the Lord on the road to Damascus. Paul was a persecutor of Christians. He was the biggest enemy of Christians that you can imagine until he met the Lord. Now, to me, that's a very hopeful thing because I know people who are antagonistic to Christ, antagonistic to the gospel. And if they have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, there's nothing that prevents them from being born again. Nothing at all. Because the Holy Spirit, when God's effectual call goes out, when God means to save somebody, he's going to save them, and, they can't be, and it cannot be stopped. It cannot be undone. The Apostle Paul was a Jewish man who became a Christian. You can read about that in Acts chapter number 9. This guy, Silas, the Bible tells us that he was a part of the church at Jerusalem. And in that church, he was a leader in that congregation as well. In Acts chapter 15, verses 22 through 26, it talks about the Jerusalem council, where there was a big debate in the church, if, and the debate was about Gentile Christians. The first church was very Jewish, and the Jews had a hard time changing their traditional viewpoints, and the Gentile Christians who were becoming Christians were not following the Jewish law like the Jews were, and the Jews were upset about it. And, they, and some Judaizers went around saying that you could not be saved unless you put your faith in Christ and kept the Old Testament law, which was a massive error. And so there was a, a, a conference held at Jerusalem in Acts 15 where the apostles and the missionary churches got together and they talked about this, this, uh, about this matter and they decided that, um, that Gentiles did not need to follow the dietary laws. And amongst those leaders was this man named Silas who became a companion of the Apostle Paul thereafter. In Acts chapter 15, verse 26, it says that Silas was persecuted. He suffered as a Christian. And one of the early church, I guess one of the hallmarks of the early church was that they suffered for their faith. I wonder how you would do under suffering for your faith. I wonder how I would do under suffering for my faith. I told you a couple weeks ago that the thought of going to jail scares me to death. I don't want to go to jail. Uh, you know, I like Roy Rogers. Don't fence me in. Let me gaze <laughs> at the sky until I lose my senses. I can't look at hobbles and I can't stand fences. Don't fence me in. I don't want to be fenced in. The thought of going to jail scares me. But I wonder how we would do under persecution. Silas was a persecuted man. The Bible also tells us in Acts chapter 15, verse 32, that Silas was a prophet. He was a prophet, so he was one of those special ministers who the Holy Spirit would speak to, and he would preach with unction and with power. 
he was an anointed preacher in the early church. Acts chapter 16, verse number 37, tells us that, that Silas, like the Apostle Paul, enjoyed Roman citizenship. And Roman citizenship in the Roman Empire entitled him to incredible privileges and freedom that other people did not have. After Paul and Barnabas split up because they had an argument about John Mark, the traveling companion, Paul took Silas with him. So this guy Silas, who's always in Paul's shadow, Silas is not a second-class person. Silas is right up there at the top doing missionary work. Then the third man mentioned in verse number one is Timothy. Timothy was a young man, and his mother was a Jewish lady, but his father was a Greek. Now, the way the Jews do their their genealogies, I guess, or do their, their pedigrees, you might say, is that... You are a Jew, you are counted as a Jew or reckoned to be Jewish if your mother is a Jew. So Timothy's mother was a Jewess, but his father was a Greek, which meant Timothy had a unique status because Timothy was raised to know the Old Testament scriptures. Paul's letter to Timothy says that in 1 Timothy. He says, you've known the Holy Scriptures from a child, and you've known them from your mother. But Timothy's father was a Greek, so Timothy was a Jewish boy, a Jewish young man, but Timothy was never circumcised until he began to travel with the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 16, verse number 3, it tells us that Paul took Timothy and he was circumcised before he began his gospel preaching ministry. What a horrible initiation to gospel ministry. What an uncomfortable thing to go through, but he goes through that for the sake of the gospel, because the Apostle Paul knows that he and Silas and Timothy were going to be going into places where the Jews were going to be ministering to Jewish people. And so we need to be as agreeable to them as possible. And so Timothy goes through circumcision, and he becomes a right-hand man to the Apostle Paul. In fact, after First and Second Thessalonians, you can read First and Second Timothy, the two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, where he encourages him in his ministry as he's a pastor at the church of Ephesus. Now, these three men are key to the spread of the gospel. It's not without... It's interesting to me that it's these three Jewish men who are key to the spread of the gospel in Europe. These are Jewish men preaching the gospel to Gentiles. And they have a very effective ministry because they work together. They function together as a team. I put down here to use this little maxim, you might see it sometimes, is that teamwork makes the dream work. Have you guys heard that before? Teamwork makes the dream work. You know, here in this church, we need to be sure we're always functioning as a team. We're working together for a common purpose. And somebody may say, well, what exactly is the purpose of Faith Baptist Church? Well, we have these two things up here, love God and love people. Right? So that's, 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 our, that's our basic purpose. But to love God and to love people means that we want to get the gospel to people. We want to get the good news of Jesus Christ to people. And you know, churches, they can do tons of good stuff and not do that. In order to be a lighthouse in a community, we need to be sure we're pumping out the gospel to our community. And one of the ways we're going to do that this year is through Vacation Bible School, trying to get kids to come here to our church to hear the story of God's Word, to learn that there is a God who made the world, and that this God who made all things cares about them. 
That's one of the ways we're going to do that. And so I hope everybody will get involved in Vacation Bible School. Because if you don't help in Vacation Bible School, where can't you go? Nobody wants to say it. <laughs> I told everybody a few weeks ago, if you don't work in Vacation Bible School, you can't go to heaven. <laughs> that's not true. But we do need your help with Vacation Bible School. So that's one of the ways we're doing that. And then in the wintertime in December, we have our live nativity that's going to be here. Live Nativity 2023. And we need everybody to get on board with that. We need lots of volunteers. In fact, if everybody in this room volunteers to help with Live Nativity 2023, we're still going to need 15 or 20 more people. It's going to be a big undertaking. It's going to be a big, a big shot in the dark. It's going to be a big lightning bolt from heaven to Sheboygan to say, we're here to talk about Jesus and make him known to you. But we all have to work together as a team. Now, to be on a team means sometimes you get to start, and sometimes you have to sit on the bench and be a reliever. There's all kinds of different roles that people have to play on this team. And it's important to us to remember that teamwork makes the dream work. We're all working together. We want to be like a little, like a, like a transmission. I started to say be like a rear end, but that'd be profane, wouldn't it? <laughs> like, a, like, a, like a car transmission with all those gears meshing up together and making contact and putting power to the wheels and driving this thing forward. We have to work together. Paul and Silas and Timothy, they worked together. They suffered together because they had a big purpose, and their big purpose was to get the gospel to their world and to their time. Now, the city to which Paul is writing is, is a city called Thessalonica, and it's the capital city of Macedonia. And because it was a Roman city, it was a typically, as the Roman cities were, it was a pagan community filled with idolatry, filled with the slave trade, filled with the sex trade. Every vice of every kind that you can imagine was common in the city of Thessalonica. Now, to the Romans, all these things were good, but to the Christians, that kind of world was distasteful. Because it was a, that, these are the hallmarks of a fallen world, and Christians are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. And you and I as Christians, because we live in a fallen world, and our, our society and culture gets a little worse every day, it seems, we need to be conscious of how much pressure that the world is exerting on us to be like them. To be like them. How many of you guys ever had a job? Now, here's what happens at a job. When I, work, I worked at a diesel shop when I was in college called Clark Machinery, and uh, we got a 15-minute break at 10.30. We got an hour lunch at noon, and then at about 3 o'clock, we got another 15-minute break. Have you guys ever had a job like that where you had prescribed break times? Now, I remember first day on the job at Clark Machinery, I was, I was a, I, they, they rented construction equipment, and they, they sold and serviced and rented construction equipment. And I had the glorious job of washing everything that came back from rental. And so I, was, I had a steam rack out there. And I, psh, I was washing off track hose and road pavers and rollers. The fun part of that job was driving stuff around. I got to drive, and you had to go out there and practice digging, digging with the backhoe. And I'd drive the, I'd drive the, the rollers. You, guys, you may have ever driven a roller, a pavement roller. And they got this thing called a vibrator on it. And they vibra-pack when they roll. And you could turn on, on a Sakai roller, you could, you could adjust the amount of vibration. And I was sitting on one of those things one day in the steam rack, because I just got done washing it, and I thought, how does this thing work exactly? 
They only had forwards and backwards. I knew that. And they had this button that said vibrator. And so I hit that button and I could, that, that, that big drum would bounce. Boom, 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 boom. You could bounce it on concrete. Now, when you're bouncing something that big on concrete, what do you think can happen? Well, it could bounce you off, but I was wearing my seatbelt. But it will crack the floor. <laughs> so you have to be careful. And I remember being in the steam rack, washing, and 10 minutes before break time, the welder came over and said, hey, we got to go wash up for break. And I said, we still got 10 minutes, bro. He's like, no, we got to go wash up now. And so we, went, we walked into the, into the building, you know, we went to the bathroom, you know, and had, a, had one of those big sinks with you, you, you step, on the, step on the handle and the water shoots out. And oh, we were washing our hands and uh, I just put my hands in there, you know, and did that. And he's like, no, you got to wash them good. We spent 10 minutes in there washing our hands. And he said, now we go to break. We're not to break. We sat down in the chairs, and we had a, a lady who would come by every day, and she would bring sandwiches and, and iced tea, and she would sell them to us, and she would come in there, and she sold some stuff to us. And so that 15 minutes really kind of blew by, and at a quarter after 10, I was sitting with 15 other guys. I stood up to go back to my job, and somebody said, where are you going? I said, break's over, right? Not yet. I was like, well, how long is it going to last? We sat there until 10.20. And then we all got up and stretched and moseyed our way back out there. And one of the guys told me, he said, now look, man. He said, at 10 minutes before break, we wash our hands. And we sit there in those chairs till five minutes after break. And I said, well, that's, that's like 25 minutes. He said, it's all paid for. But they, they didn't want anybody to wreck the system. They wanted, I felt bad about sitting there, Right? but only for a little while. <laughs> I fell in with everybody else's habits. They, they pressured me. They forced me to take longer breaks, you know? But that's how it is. People exert pressure on us, and the world is putting pressure on us. The world's putting pressure on us to adopt their ideals. They want us to think the way they think about everything and live the way they live. They want us to abandon Christ. I worked for a pastor in West Virginia when I was my very first job in the ministry. He preached a sermon about Pharaoh who wanted to let, who would, when Moses asked if, if Israel could go and worship, it, Pharaoh said, go and worship, but don't go too far in worship. And he had this little sermon he would preach called, serve God, but don't serve God much. Follow the Lord, but don't follow the Lord very far. Be a Christian, but don't be too Christian. Be committed, but not, not too committed. That's what the world wants us to do. They don't want us to be all in for Christ. And my friends, let me say this to you. Let's be all in for Jesus. Let's commit ourselves completely and totally to him and resist the pressure of the world to change, to adopt their philosophies. Let's not be halfway Christians. Now, we have to be cautious about these things. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 17, Peter talking about this very thing, where he says that we must sanctify the Lord completely in our hearts and devote ourselves to him. Let's turn there and read that. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 and 17. Just turn to the right, probably 10 or so pages, and you'll probably land about right there. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. Therefore, beloved... Since you are waiting for these things, for the Lord to come, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count that the patience of our Lord as salvation, 
I think I've made the wrong notation here. At the men's Bible study Saturday, I was looking for something, looking for a passage, and I just started reading the whole chapter. I just read until I found what I was looking for. I won't do that to you today. It's one Peter. What's on the screen? Yeah, same error there. Probably Daryl did it. <laughs> one Peter chapter three, verse fourteen. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled the world they live in. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always prepare to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect and having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered and those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that be God's will, than for doing evil. Our hearts, we should honor the Lord and our hearts as holy. Now, I like, I like the way the authorized version puts it, sanctify the Lord in your heart, because you're setting the Lord apart in a special place in your heart, that you are completely devoted to Him, that you're going to answer the scoffer and the skeptic because of your love for Him. You're going to resist their pressures because you love Him. So that's the world in which we find the Thessalonians living a fallen world, a wicked world, and they have to resist the pressures of their community to think the way that they do. Now, why did the Apostle Paul write this letter? How often do you guys write letters to people? You write letters very often. I hardly ever write a letter, and uh, I don't send a ton of emails, but I do send emails. But usually, if I send somebody a letter or a card or a note, it's for a specific reason. It's for a reason. And sometimes... Uh, you know, you, meet, you see somebody at church, you don't see them for a while, and you get to missing them, and so you send them a note to say, hey, where are you at? One time in, in Arkansas, we had, to, had this family, they went to our church, and uh, I think their name was Smith, or Jones. It was the Smith family. And uh, I would send them, I, miss, I would miss them. You know, they wouldn't come to church, and so one time... I had a piece of paper, and I wrote, a wanted, I wrote a wanted poster. Wanted. Alive only. The Smith family. <laughs> and mailed it to them. And, uh, you know, the, and I've sent letters like that to people before, and sometimes people get mad, but they thought it was pretty funny, and they showed up. You know, they said, they said, they said where's, where's the reward? I said, well, that's where I lied. <laughs> there is no reward. So I, I wrote them a letter because I wanted them to come to church, and why does the Apostle Paul write this letter to the Thessalonians? Well, you can read about that in chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3. Verse number 5 is Paul wanted to know how they were doing. Listen to what Paul says in verse 17. Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. Paul says in this section, I wanted to come to see you. I was taken away from you abruptly. Paul had to leave Thessalonica because persecution sprung up and he had to leave town. And he wants to come to them, verse 18, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, wanted to come to you again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? Is it not you? 
For you are our glory and joy. Paul says, you people who have come to faith in Christ, you are my glory, you are my joy, you are my happiness in the Lord. Because there's nothing greater than preaching the gospel to somebody and seeing them come to faith in Christ and then persevere in following Christ. Sometimes preachers will talk about fruit that remains. It's great to, to preach the gospel, see somebody saved, and see that person put down roots and stay in church. It's such a blessing. It's such a blessing. Paul says, I want to know how you were. In chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, when I could not take any longer to not know how you were doing, I was willing to be left behind at Athens alone and sent Timothy to come and see how you were doing. So the apostle Paul, he was worried about them. He was worried about how they were doing, how they were making it in their Christian life. And so because there was no email, there was no telephones, he has to send somebody to go and check on the church at Thessalonica. And who does he send? He sends this young guy, Timothy. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. So Paul sent Timothy to check on them because he's worried about them. He's worried about them. I want to tell you something. Because I'm worried about some of you, too. I'm worried about you. And here are the, <laughs> the things in which I'm worried about you. I'm worried about you if you're growing in the Lord in your faith. I'm worried about you if you're really growing in the Lord. I'm worried about you. Because tough times are coming. Tough times are coming. And I'm worried about you. Are you growing in the Lord? Now, you, I can't make you grow in the Lord. Only, only, but you, you play a, a vital role in your own personal growth. You've got to read the Bible. I'd hate to know how many of you did not read the Bible this past week. hate to know it. You've got to read the Bible. I talked to a guy earlier this week, a Christian man. He said, you know, I don't read the Bible very much because he said, for my main reason is I'm not a very good reader. And a lot of people fall in that category. They're not really good readers. But they read good enough to see how to fix something or repair something. They know how to read a TV guide. Is anybody so good at a TV guide? <laughs> know how to read a hunting magazine or a fishing magazine. You know, reading is a discipline that is so good for you to read. In the world in which we live in, you can listen to the Bible. In fact, I got my phone right here, and I use this, I use this little program called eSword. And if I open it right now, here you go. And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said unto him. You can have, you can have little, these little apps just read the Bible to you. You can set the speed so it reads it faster or slower. You can almost any translation of the Bible you want, you can go online and have the Bible read so you can follow along, get familiar with God's Word. Are you really growing? Are you really growing in your knowledge of Christ? Are you growing in your faith? Are you becoming more and more dependent upon the Lord or less dependent on the Lord? I worry sometimes who's going to quit coming to church next. I don't know anybody who's quit, quit coming to church recently, but I'm always worried about that. Who's going to quit coming to church? And when people quit coming to church, that's usually a, a sign of a spiritual problem. It's always a sign of a spiritual problem. There's something going on. Either some kind of relationship has taken place or something happening. Don't, I'm worried that people will quit coming to church. 
I'm worried if you'll let your sins control you because we all have sinful appetites and sinful vices we get involved in. We have these, these little nagging things and sometimes we give in to them and they take us over. Worried. Kind of in the same way a pastor worries about his congregation the same way a father worries about their kids. In fact, the Greek words indicate that it's a paternal feeling that pastors have about their congregation, worried about their future, worried about decisions they're making and things they're doing. Worried. Paul is concerned for the church at Thessalonica. He's worried about them. What's going on over there? Are they going to face up through the persecutions and afflictions? And so what Paul does is he sends Timothy to see how they're doing because he's worried about them. And Timothy comes back and he reports to Paul and it's, Paul's, it's Timothy's report to Paul that causes Paul to write this letter. Now, Timothy's report about how things are at Thessalonica includes two kinds of news. Good news and bad news. The good news is in the first part we read, chapter, four, chapter 1, verses 4 to 10. We know, brethren beloved, by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power. Then the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And you became imitators of us. These are all positive things. That now you, you've sounded forth the word of God in verse number 8. You've turned from idols to serve the living and true God. You're looking, you're looking for and expecting Jesus to return from heaven. These are all good things. But Timothy comes back and there's also bad news from Thessalonica as well. I'm just going to touch on some of these things. So I'm going to come back later and uh, preach through the, the whole book, I think. The whole little letter. Unless you guys want me to do it today. What do you say? Come back. I'm getting mixed emotions. I'm getting mixed, mixed, mixed signals. All in favor of doing it all today, be seated. <laughs> Motion passes. <laughs> the bad news is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And this, this whole section seems to be misgivings about the Apostle Paul. In chapter 2, the whole, all of chapter 2, Paul seems to be defending himself and defending his motives for what he has done. Now, my friends, Christians and pastors are often misunderstood by people. More than once, I've heard this. All preachers care about is what? Money. That's how we get our planes. That's how we get our yachts. <laughs> That's how we get it, two or three homes, right? <laughs> Why well, I know for a fact that pastors are not all concerned about money. Because I'm not concerned about money. Now, it's not, let me say it differently. I'm not overly concerned about money. <laughs> money make, you got to have money to do stuff, right? But I know lots of pastors who don't do what they do because of how much they make. They do what they do because they love the Lord. And God meets their needs and takes care of them and they get, a, they get a living through a church. But sometimes the motives are questioned. And that's what you see in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 2. Look how the Apostle Paul talks about it. Verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we'd already suffered at Philippi, you know that we were bold in our God to declare the gospel to you in the midst of conflict. Our appeal to you 
does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from the people. He just goes on and on defending himself because I think there must have been some misgivings about Paul at Thessalonica. Somebody was saying, well, you know why Paul said that? You know why Paul did that? Putting a, putting a spin on his activities there. And then, of course, Paul's absence. Paul says he loves them, but he doesn't come to see them. Somebody there must have been saying, yeah, if Paul really loved us, he'd come and see us. And so Paul has the right to say, I wanted to come and see you. I've tried to come and see you, but Satan has hindered. So there's some misgivings about Paul. How does Paul know about this? Timothy comes back and says, Paul, these people are saying some negative things about you, and they need to hear, need to hear this because Paul seems to be defending himself. Another thing that Timothy encounters in chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, is there were sex problems in that church. Because the Apostle Paul spends eight verses challenging the Thessalonian people to possess, the authorized version will say it like this, to possess your vessel in honor. But the ESV says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Listen to what verse 3 says. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality and that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. The Christian's sexual ethic is not the same as the world's sexual ethic. Christians are not supposed to be committing fornication and adultery. The Apostle Paul says this, More than once in his letters, actually he says over and over in his letters to Gentile churches, do not let fornication be named among you one time. Knock it off. Now, anytime you have a group of sinners together in a church, what are you always going to have? You're always going to have some kind of sin. And if you're involved in sinful stuff right now, let me say this to you just very kindly. Knock it off. Stop it. Quit doing it. It's worse than you can think. Some of these passions we get involved in, they overtake us and can control us. We should possess our bodies in honor. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, Do you not know that those of you who join yourself to a harlot or to a prostitute, you're taking God's temple and joining it to something that's unholy? There's sex problems there in the church at Thessalonica. And then in chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, There's gossip problems in the church. Now, I asked my dad one time, I said, Dad, if you could have a church full of people who smoked or a church full of gossips, which one would you you rather have? Guess what he said? He said, bring on the smokers. So, the best way for you to stop gossiping is to start smoking. Every time you feel like you need to gossip, light up. <laughs> gossip, gossip is bad. Gossip is just bad. I mean, everybody likes gossip. It's so hard. Sometimes, sometimes we can't discern what is gossip and what isn't gossip, but this is a problem at Corinth, at Thessalonica. 
And there's also a problem with laziness. People are not working. Listen to the reading from verses 10 and 12. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Gossip and laziness were problems. That's Thessalonica. And then you'll love this part in chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. They had pastor problems over there. Now, we don't know the depth of these problems, but this is, this is the attitude of the church it would see in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now, that is aimed at pastors, I think. We urge you, brother pastors, to admonish the idle. Pastor problems. And then verses 14 through 22, it's all about regular church stuff, church problems. All these little ones in the authorized version, these are all one sentence sermons, kind of. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all things. For this will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophesying, but test everything. Abstain from every form of evil. There were issues at Corinth. At, not at Corinth, but at Thessalonica. And Paul writes to them to try to get them to change their way, to correct themselves. He calls them on the carpet and points these things out. And now you may be saying, well, so what? What does, that, what does a, a letter written to a church 2,000 years ago have to do with us? Because we find these very same problems present in our church. You say, are you sure about that? Well, if they're not, if they're not a problem now, they will be in the future. If they're not a problem now, they will be in the future. Because every church errs in some ways. Now, in conclusion, if any of your sins that you are currently involved in or committing have been mentioned today, stop it. Stop them. And, and here's, the, here's the way God works, right? As a parent... You think of God as a father, and usually a parent, if your kid is acting up, what's the first thing you do? Hey, you need to stop. Stop it right now. So I've said this to, to the kids hundreds of times through the years. Hey, stop it. And then if they, if they, don't, if they don't stop, do you hear me? Listen. Pay attention. Now, Matt, all the, other, all the others are gone. Only Matt here. When all the girls are gone, Matt, he's going to be the, bear the brunt of all of it. Look, listen. And then, if they don't listen, what happens? Then discipline happens. Then chastisement happens. I'm going to say this to you. I am still of the opinion that the best thing for kids for discipline is a smack on the backside. Smack on the backside. Now, everybody has to make their own decisions about what kind of discipline they have in their house, right? Smack them on the backside. You smack them when they're little, you don't have to smack them when they're big, right? I'll amen my own preaching. Amen. <laughs> you, have to start, you have to start bending those kids when they're little. 
If you wait, if you wait until they're 15 or 16 years old and say, I'm going to give you a spanking, you're going to have hell to pay. You're going to have a war. You've got you to gotta work on them when they're little. Being a parent is tough. Being a parent's a lot of work. We, we've, had, we've had these kids, and they have worn us slap out. And you'll be tired, and you won't want to get up and follow through with that kind of thing. But you have to discipline them. Now, sometimes there's, all, there's always all kinds of discipline, right? There's uh, levels of discipline where you say, now look, maybe you take away their, uh, what are those little games they call, little, little handheld jiggers. Uh, video games or DS or take away their TV, take away their phone, take away their bicycle, take away their glasses. <laughs> Let them wander around blind for a while. <laughs> there's all kinds of, there's discipline that takes place, but it starts with correction, with that voice. If you don't listen to God's voice to stop doing the sins you're doing, you're going to cause the Heavenly Father to, to use correction, the rod of correction on you. Now, that, that can be different things. If you're one of God's, the Bible says in Hebrews that anybody who says they're a Christian but is never chastised is not really a Christian. If you're one of God's children, he's going to chasten you. He's going to get your attention. If you want to avoid that, stop doing it. God, your Father, is warning you because He loves you. He doesn't want to see you wreck and ruin your life. Now, if your sins were mentioned, knock them off. Be aware of the effect your sin has on other people. Your personal sins hurt the church as a whole because the church is a body of connected parts. Your sins affect everybody. Because we're, 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 we're one body together. When you err, it's bad for us. How many, how many churches do you know of, do you think are, are hurt by members who live disorderly lives? So when you're down there at, at some place, and if you, if you go out Friday night and you get drunk and beat the dog out of somebody, don't tell them you go to Faith Baptist Church. Tell them you go to some other church. Lie. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just, it's a, bad, it's a bad reputation for the church. Your personal sins affect the church. You know, there are people in Sheboygan who don't go to church here and won't go to church here because you go to church here. In Arkansas, I, I was pastoring a church and had a guy who I did some business with and I talked him into coming to church with us, and he showed up at church, and the next Sunday, he did not come back. And I called him up, and I said, what's the deal, man? I said, you, I thought you were going to, why didn't you come back? He said, I'm not coming back to that church because a guy named, I don't know if I should say his name or not, Jones. Jones. <laughs> we have Joneses here already. He said, I'm not coming back to your church because so-and-so goes to church there. And I said, well, I don't, I don't get it. But then so-and-so wound up getting mad at me. Can you believe it? Can you believe somebody get mad at me? He got mad at me and left the church. The very next Sunday, that guy was back. Because once that guy was there, because they had some kind of hostility toward each other over something, 
Sometimes people won't go to church where you go to church because maybe you're not being a good Christian out there in the world where you're at. It happens. It happens. I don't know the cure for it, but it definitely happens. Now, you need to avoid all sins, right? We tend to put sins in categories, though. There are big sins and little sins. You might say that a big sin is fornication and little sin is gossip and laziness. Now, we, we need to get all the sins out. Stop doing those sins. Stop doing those sins. You say, well, you may say, well, how come you're giving this sermon today? Well, it's for a reason. Today is Communion Sunday. And Communion Sundays are a good time to look at your life and recalibrate your Christian life. Because you're now, now you're going you're gonna to eat and drink in memory of, the, of Christ who died for you. It's a good time to look at your life and say, am I really in the right spot? Am I really, do I really love the Lord? Do I really value the blood and body of Christ that died for me? Do I really care about that? It's a good time to evaluate. It's a good time to rededicate your life to Jesus. I've been a Christian a long time, and I've rededicated my life to the Lord more times than I care to think about. When I was a teenager, every summer, every fall, with different revivals, I would rededicate myself to the Lord. And as a past, I thought, you know, when I become a mature Christian, I won't have to do that as much anymore. But I've been a pastor now for, oh, I don't know, feels like 100 years sometimes. But I've been a pastor for, since 2005, so that's 18 years. That's Leslie's whole life I've been a pastor. And you know how many times I've rededicated my life to the Lord as a pastor? Every Monday. <laughs> Every Monday. And today, <laughs> before church even began. Because, you know, you just get out of whack sometimes. You get off kilter. How many of you guys got a car? Anybody got a car? Got a truck? You maybe got a Corvette? Can I borrow it? <laughs> and you drive your car down the road, especially in Sheboygan. You, hit a, you ever hit a chuck hole, hit a pothole in your car, and knocks your alignment out? If Sheboygan had potholes, you know what I, you'd, you'd understand. And get your, you get your steering gets out of alignment, and you're trying to drive your car, and you, you can hardly keep it straight. Take your hand off the wheel for a second, and you're taking out mailboxes. You get, life can knock you out of alignment. And you got to go into the shop and get on the rack and get realigned. And Communion Sunday is just that kind of thing for us. It's a time for us to recalibrate and rededicate ourselves to Christ. It's a good time to confess our sins and repent and then relaunch ourselves as Christians. So as we do that today, let's think about those things. Now let's make a prayer together, and then we're going to have, have communion. Now we're going, to, we're going to pass it around today, so it's going to take us a little, little bit more time. But let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be, to be your servant. And I pray, Lord, that these meager words that I've given to your people will be fitting for their life. Lord, I pray that Christians here who are erring would correct their, their path, Lord, and 
get right with you. Lord, I pray that we talk about these sins kind of in a, in a generic sense and kind of prevent it in, as a preventative. Lord, I pray that it would always be preventative. I pray that you would protect us from being overtaken by our sins, from being ruled by our passions. I pray that you deliver us from it. Help us to be a church that's described in verses 4 to 10 there, imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, don't let us become the church that is full of bad news for those who care about us. Father, I pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.